Hey, you're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about our church, you can visit ktnnaz.org, visit us on Facebook, just search Ketchikan Naz, or you can download our free app from the iPhone store or the Google Play store, just search Ketchikan Naz. Thanks for visiting. Hope the Word of God speaks to you today. sit right here. Okay. And I'm going to read a story called The Sun Stops Shining. Now, big kids, um, that would be everyone else in the sanctuary. Um, what, uh, what I'm going to read today is scripture. It's the passage that we're going to read a little bit later. But as I'm reading it to the kids, would you allow your minds to become like children of God and embrace the beauty of this storytelling? Um, you might not be able to see the beautiful pictures, uh, but you can use your mind's eye. Okay? This is the story called The Sun Stops Shining. It's taken from Matthew chapter 27. So you're a king, are you? The Roman soldiers jeered. Well, then you'll need a crown and a robe. They gave Jesus a crown made out of thorns, and they put a purple robe on him, and they pretended to bow down to him. Your majesty, they said. And then they whipped him, and they spit on him. They didn't understand that this was the Prince of Life, the King of Heaven and Earth, the one who'd come to rescue them. The soldiers made him a sign, our King, and nailed it to a wooden cross. They walked up a hill outside the city. Jesus carried the cross on his back. Jesus had never done anything wrong, but they were going to kill him the way that criminals were killed. They nailed Jesus to the cross. Father, forgive them, Jesus said. They don't understand what they're doing. You say you've come to rescue us, people shouted. But you can't even rescue yourself. But they were wrong. Jesus could have rescued himself. A whole bunch of angels could have flown to his side if he'd asked. If you really were the Son of God, you could just climb right down off that cross, they said. And of course they were right. Jesus could have climbed right down. Actually, he could have said just a word and made it all stop. Like when he healed the little girl and calmed the storm and fed 5,000 people. But Jesus stayed. You see, they didn't understand. It wasn't nails that kept Jesus there. It was love. Papa, Jesus cried, frantically searching the sky. Papa, where are you? Don't leave me. And for the first time and the last When he spoke, nothing happened. Just a horrible, endless silence from God. God didn't answer. He turned away from his boy. Tears rolled down Jesus' face. The face of the one who would wipe away every tear from every eye. And even though it was midday, a dreadful darkness covered the face of the world. The sun could not shine. The earth trembled and quaked. The great mountains shook, rocks split in two, until it seemed like the whole world would break, that creation itself would tear apart. The full force of the storm of God's fierce anger on sin was coming down on his son instead of his people. It was the only way God could destroy sin and not destroy his children's whose hearts were filled with sin. Then Jesus shouted in a loud voice, It is finished. And it was. He had done it. 
Jesus had rescued the whole world. Father, Jesus cried, I give you my life. And with a great sigh, Jesus let himself die. Strange clouds and shadows filled the sky, purple, orange, and black, like a bruise. And this is the story we're going to talk about this morning. So you can grab a sheet of paper, and you can get a little pencil, and you guys can go sit with your families, okay? Parents, that's a compelling story, is it not? Um, something about the wording of that story that gets me every time, that I think it's the personal way the author reflects the relationship between Jesus and his dad. Um, causes something in my heart to just kind of skip a beat. Now, this uh, death narrative that we're reading about in the... Where is my Bible? going to need a Bible at some point today. There we go. Okay. This uh, death narrative in the gospel that we read about, it's not one that we're strangers to in our culture, right? I mean, more specifically in Christianity, we understand what happened at the cross. Jesus went to the cross. He died for the sins of the world. Um, even in the world today, people aren't strangers to the idea of Jesus on the cross. Um, it's something that we see as kind of a cultural icon. Most people are generally aware of it. The theme of Jesus' death is found throughout Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the first book of the Bible to the last book of the Bible. It's not a new occurrence. Um, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it reads this way. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This verse is called the Proto-Evangelon. Fancy word that means it's the first gospel. It's the first time that Jesus the Messiah, the atonement for our sins, is spoken about. And it happened immediately after the very first sin in the garden. Adam and Eve sinned, and God said there's going to be consequences for sin. But I will send a Messiah to you, and he will save you from your sins. And here's how this plays out. Between you and the woman, there will always be struggle. There will always be struggle in our hearts with Satan, right? Between your offspring and her offspring. Generation after generation, this world is entrenched in sin. That's the enmity between us, okay? But he, the seed of the woman, Jesus, the son or the, the son of uh, Mary will bruise your head meaning um, Jesus one day is going to step on the snake's head kill him but you will only bruise his heel meaning Satan will only moderately wound the Messiah and something that he will recover from this is a passage that tells us that one day Jesus will crush Satan firmly and sternly Ending his reign over people forever. The first gospel, and it's found in Genesis 3.15. Revelation 5, though, the last book of the Bible, reads this way. And they sang, this is in the throne room, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on earth. 
Genesis tells the story of the gospel. Revelation tells the story of the gospel. Um, It's set in the throne room, the throne room of God, in a moment when there was a need for someone with supreme authority to open a scroll that would bring about the creation of the new world. And no one was found worthy except one person, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, which is the descendant of the Lion of David, which is the seed that we talked about in Genesis. He was seen as a Lamb of God, standing as though it had been slain. That's what Scripture says in Revelation. And it took the scroll and opened it. Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain for the world, the sins of the world, and because of his sacrificial love, he alone is worthy to administer the kingdom into full effect. From Genesis to Revelation, the story of the sacrifice of Jesus is not a new one. It's woven through all the stories of God. This story of Jesus is the big story that is from Genesis to Revelation, the story of a world that was created perfect, and yet because of sin, began to decay and slowly fall apart at the seams. It's a world where people are slaves to sin, slaves to the flesh, and God's creation slowly unravels, like how you have a loose thread on a sweater, and you pull it, thinking that it won't do too much damage, but you undo the whole hem, and then you're like, oh no, what happened? And if you keep pulling, if you knit something, you can undo the entire sweater. That's what sin was trying to do to the world that God had beautifully made. You pull on that, and it's slowly going to unravel. But God said, listen, I'm going to use every story in this Bible to point you to the moment in history that is going to stop the unraveling and undo it. At a very specific point in the history of the world, the death of Jesus, and then the events that immediately followed, the world was changed forever. That moment took a broken sin-ravaged, decaying, dying world and offered it a cure by opening a door to the kingdom of heaven by which everyone has access to. So I want to take a closer look at the events of Jesus' death and then the moments after death to see how God intends to heal a broken world. And so often, as pastors, we focus on preaching the death of Jesus, the gruesome crucifixion. Kid you not, it's gruesome, okay? We're not going to go into all the details today. We're going to lightly hit on it. But we are often, as pastors, guilty of skipping over the verses immediately following the death of Jesus that happened before the burial of Jesus. Did you know there's content between he was died and he was buried? And those verses are so sweet to our understanding of God's kingdom. We're going to spend some time there this morning. But first, we must look at the cross. I'm going to pray... And then we're going to review some of the verses that we read in the children's Bible this morning and dive in a little more deeply. Lord, your word has been read already, um, and we're going to look at it and read it some more this morning. I pray that as we read your word, those that are in this room will receive it as it is intended, as life-giving and challenging and encouraging. And Lord, if there are ways in which we are not aligned with this word, would you help us? And that might be that we have unrepented sin this morning. Lord, would you let us know that you love us and that you died for us so that we could have life with you that is eternal and greater than the life we have now? Lord, I pray that prayer for those folks that are tuning in via Periscope this morning as well. They, too, are part of our service this morning. And whether they tune in for one minute or five minutes, at some point they're going to hear the good news of Jesus. 
And I pray that you would be with them the way you are with us, because wherever your word is preached, you are there. And we pray that lives would be changed everywhere this morning because of your gospel. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right. So Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 55 is where we are today. And I'm just going to go over 27 through 44, and then we'll dive in a little deeper after that. Um, Here's a map, okay, of uh, here's Bethany and the Mount of Olives over here, Garden of Gethsemane, okay? Uh, This is the city with the walls, Herod's palace, uh, the high priest's area, uh, fortress uh, over here, and Golgotha over here, just to give you a little perspective of what we're talking about this morning. Jesus, at this point in our passage, has already been severely flogged. That's where we left off last week, right? Jesus had been flogged. And um, before he is crucified, he is, as in a flogged state, brought before several hundred Roman soldiers. And they, um, scripture says he was in uh, the, the fortress, so we're going to assume it's right about here um, in the fortress area, which is the kind of the Herod the governor's palace. It was very... That was a fortress because he wanted safety from the rest of the people. So they brought him there, and in there was a large courtyard, large enough to hold the legion of military that was present. So that could range anywhere between 200 and 1,000 Roman soldiers, okay? So they brought Jesus, who has been flogged, before these several hundred conservatively Roman soldiers. Now, he was wrapped in clothes after being flogged because they transported him across town. And these clothes had formed kind of a band-aid on the wounds of the Lord. And when they brought him before these Roman soldiers, they ripped the clothes off of him, stripped him naked, which ripped that clotting blood off him, okay? And it started him bleeding all over again. And then this crowd began to mock him, calling him king, placing a crown of thorns on him, taunting him, blindfolding him, um, spitting on him, beating him even more. And in essence, I need you to picture what is happening. This is the Roman military that formed a circle around Jesus and then decided to do whatever they wanted with him. This is what you might see in um, like a prison yard scene in a movie where they gather around a prisoner and just beat him mercilessly. This is what they did to the Messiah, each one in turn stepping up and having the fun that they wanted to with him and then stepping back and allowing another to come in. And these are hardened Roman soldiers that had great training and force. Now they beat him very severely and he had lost so much blood that at this point it was time for him to carry the cross and he was unable to do so. And so as they started the walk to Golgotha from the fortress on this main road here, to, the, to Golgotha, they found that he was too weak to carry his cross, and they forced a man in the crowd to carry it for him. That would have been an intimidating moment for that man. Everybody knows who Jesus is. Nobody really wants to be associated with him. Roman government is about to kill him, and Roman government comes up to you, grabs you, and says, you carry this man's cross. Well, if I don't do it right, are you going to kill me? That's what I'd be thinking. What's going to happen to me if I can't do this? I don't want to do this. Needless to say, the man carried the cross for Jesus up this hill to Golgotha. Now, they arrived at Golgotha. Okay, Um, I need to just put the city in perspective for you for a moment. The next picture I'm going to show you is the picture, current day, Golgotha. 
and it's going to be right here, which you can view from the city, and the picture I'm going to show you is from the city right here. So you're kind of looking up at Golgotha, okay? So this is now modern-day city. You can see buses that are city tours, okay? Um, and the main road that comes by is still the old main road that comes by here, okay? So this is the main road, and now this is a little platform they've set up so you can look up to Golgotha. This is the hill that Jesus was crucified on. It was a public hill on a high traffic road in that day, okay? Um, and this was Passover, so lots of people were coming and going on the Passover road, okay? And it was on that high public hill, on a very public road, during a very public populated season, think biggest tourism day you could, okay? That they nailed Jesus' hands and feet to the cross and lifted him up and set him down. He was hung in full view of anyone coming or going to Jerusalem. And the guards began to gamble at his feet for the possessions that he had with him. Now while Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was mocked again as if he hadn't endured enough. He was mocked again. The public trials, the beatings, the hordes of soldiers, and now passerbys on the road. Anyone walking by to Jerusalem could look up and chant at him, and scripture says, if you are the Son of God, then... And it was very mocking. And their mocking cry sounds a lot like something else we read in Matthew. If you are the Son of God... And turn these stones into bread. If you are the son of God. And you leap off this pinnacle. The angels will catch you. The only other person who said these words to Jesus. Was Satan in the wilderness. When he was being tempted as his ministry began. When Satan tried to get Jesus to sidestep the crucifixion. And Jesus stood strong against the test. And the trial in that day saying. You will not put the Lord your God to the test. And man does not live by bread alone, and he quoted scripture. And yet now he is on the cross, which he could have avoided if he listened to Satan in the first place, but he didn't. He came to the cross. He could have avoided it, and now he's on the cross, and what does he hear? Those same words over again. If you were the son of God. Oh, that's just mean from Satan. That's just taunting. People might have said it to him in passing by, but I guarantee you that was inspired by the adversary of our souls. Satan, make no mistake, is mocking the Lord while he hangs on the cross. But it wasn't just passerbys that mocked Jesus. It was the priests and the scribes too. As a pastor, I cannot imagine. I, it's what I do. I proclaim God on a regular basis and I cannot imagine being someone who proclaims the holiness of God and yet then going to a crucifixion and mocking someone. Whether or not they claim to be the Lord or not, you don't mock someone when they're dying. You are supposed to help people grieve and see the glory of God in the midst of trial. Not go to their feet and say, Hey, Jesus, how come you can heal other people but you can't heal yourself? I don't go to hospital rooms and say, Hey, why can't you heal yourself? Doctor, now that you're in the hospital, you can heal other people. It doesn't make any sense what these priests are doing. But they hollered up and they said, hey, 
You can heal other people. How come you can't heal yourself? And then, whether intentionally or not, in God's providence, the words that they use next are a direct quote from Psalm 22, saying, hey, how come you can heal other people but not save yourself? Quote, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him. It's a direct quote of Psalm 22, which is one of the psalms that in its entirety prophesies the death of Jesus in great detail. The gambling for his clothes, the nails, the nothing of his bones being broken, um, the spear in his side, his last breath, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The entire crucifixion passage that we read in the Gospels is foretold in Psalms 22. And here we have fulfillment of that psalm when the religious leaders of the day, intentionally or not, are using those words. He trusts in God, so let God deliver him. In a mocking tone is how they say it. What they don't realize, and this is so important, what they don't realize is that God did deliver Jesus. Not from death and suffering, but through it to the other side, right? He didn't deliver Jesus from the death and the suffering. Jesus endured those things. But he was delivered through death and suffering and came out alive on the other side. And because of that, we have a hope that when we are enduring trials and suffering, even if we are not delivered from them, we can be delivered through them because Jesus has walked that path. And you cannot lead somewhere, someone somewhere you have not been. Jesus has been there, has gone the other side. So we take hold of the hope that regardless of what is going on in our life, if we are not delivered from our present sorrows and sufferings, we can be delivered through them. And scripture says that might even refine in us more of the image of God. But it wasn't just the passerbys and the priests and scribes. Jesus was insulted and mocked by two robbers who were crucified next to him. Now, what we need to know about crucifixion is that it was a slow and painful death by suffocation. Okay? It wasn't the wounds that killed you. It was the fact that your entire body weight hung on your feet and hands. Okay? And so in order to breathe, you had to press up on your feet breathe in and then you'd fall back down because it was too painful to continue to stay pressed up. So, if you are going to shout to someone next to you, you must really hate them because you have to press up to get a big enough breath in your lungs to be able to yell curses at the Lord on the cross next to you. That's what the robbers did. It wasn't a casual, you know, they had to stand up under their own weight Breathe, feel the pain, and yell at the Lord. How much do you have to hate someone to endure that, right? Jesus was mocked during his crucifixion. What's interesting to note about the word robbers, they weren't thieves. Um, the word robber is translated insurrectionist, um, terrorist, like Barabbas, who we read about the other week, right? These are folks who committed the same crime as Barabbas. They are insurrectionist terrorists, not common thieves. Um, that takes us all the way to verse 44. Now I want to read to you verses 45 through 55, and we're going to dig into this in more detail. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And some bystanders hearing it saying, this man's calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, hey, don't do that. Wait, let's see if Elijah's going to come save him. Then Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, this is the section most people don't focus on. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs were opened, and many of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and came out of the tomb in his resurrection, and they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion who was with them, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe, and they said, Truly this was the Son of God. And so also were many women there looking on from a distance. They'd followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And this is the word of the Lord. This is the moments after death. This is something significant for us. That's a real... Resolution doesn't pick up very well, but there you go. Picture of three crosses. Um, I chose this picture because of the colors of the sky, which you can't really see well, but it's kind of a darkish, bruise-colored sky, which child's Bible reflected so well. Matthew tells us that when Jesus was on the cross, the world experienced supernatural darkness, which you might go, I didn't pick that up from what we just read. I mean... Sixth hour and ninth hour, there was darkness. I don't know, was it midnight? Was it 10 o'clock? I don't know when they were crucifying Jesus. Okay, so let's clarify this. This was happening between noon and 3 p.m., right? Between noon and 3 p.m., there was a supernatural darkness. Jesus' birth was marked by what? A supernatural light that guided people, wise men, Gentiles, to his birth location in the middle of the night, right? So the star was so bright, it shone and it illuminated the path in the dead of night. And then, at Jesus' death, in broad middle day, instead of having daylight, we have supernatural darkness at noon. And it accentuates the loneliness of Christ on the cross. There's this Beautiful play between his birth and his death, the beginning of his life and the end of his life, the supernatural light and the supernatural dark that ushers in the light of the world and that shrouds this light in darkness as he atones for the sins of the world. And when the darkness reached its peak at 3 p.m., Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet again, another direct quote from Psalm 22 And it was at this moment when the Lord cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was at this specific moment that Jesus felt the full wrath of God for all of the sins of the world for all time. It was not the pain in his hands. It was not the pain in his feet. It was not the lack of air in his lungs or the swelling that was occurring in his heart but a complete and total separation from God that occurred in this moment. This is something 
that theologically we have to wrestle with as Christians because Jesus is God, right? So how does God be separate from God? And that's an honest question to ask, right? In this moment, Jesus is fully human and fully divine, and something occurred wherein the relationship with Jesus had with the Father, which we know was intimate and beautiful and close, and they spoke and they prayed and he received guidance, and it was a relationship like none other, because they're one and the same. At the moment when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was cut off from God completely. There was no light, no hope, no love, no future, no joy, because those things are found with God and God only. So somehow, God supernaturally worked, and he cut off Jesus from himself, the human Sin was placed on the human Jesus. And somehow between all of Jesus God and all of Jesus man, God did a miracle that I will honestly say sometimes I still struggle to know how it works, but I don't have to know how everything God does works, right? I just, right, I just need to trust that in that moment, all of the separation I should be experiencing, Jesus got. And so when I deserve being cut off from light and hope and love and a future and joy and life and all of those things, Jesus was cut off, fully abandoned. And it's why he cried that out. He was forsaken so we wouldn't be. And that was the wrath of God, not the nails in the hands. That was very terrible, horrible way to die. But that was not the wrath of God. The wrath of God was the separation because sin is separation from God. Then, having experienced the wrath of God, forsaken, separated, cut off, Jesus did what Adam and Eve didn't do in the garden, because Jesus is better than they are. Sin came in through Adam, but Jesus is a better Adam, and he's going to bring life. He did what Adam and Eve didn't, and even when the weight of the sins of the world was on him, and he was cut off from God... He turned to God. And he said, Take my spirit. I give it to you. And that moment is when the completion of the atonement occurred. Jesus having been separated and then choosing the moment he gives his spirit to God. This is important. He chose the moment he died. He chose the moment of his death. He even on the cross, suffering and separated from God, was sovereign and greater than the evil that put him there. And he chose the moment. There was no need for him to stay on the cross any longer. Crucifixions could last up to nine days. Jesus has lasted three hours because he was there, not for the nails in the hands, but for the separation from God. And as soon as God had laid the separation on him, the atonement had occurred, and he could yield his spirit back to God. The moment he chose was 3 p.m. What's significant about 3 p.m.? Anybody know? This is, this is so cool. This is one of those geeky, nerdy things. <clears throat> According to Hebrews chapter 10, And every priest stands daily at his service, 
offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God at 3 p.m. every day in the temple, sacrifice for sin was being made. And Jesus, at 3 p.m., received the separation for our sins and was made the sacrifice for our sins for all time, the single sacrifice that completed the old covenant and ushered in the new covenant. I just think that that's neat how God does those things. And so often we look at the death of Christ on the cross in our place for our sins and we stop and we go, Jesus died. It is finished. Close the Bible. Wait for Easter. Right? I mean, that's what happens, right? Because generally we hit that passage right about Good Friday. And then we close the book and we don't really talk about it until Easter when we're like, there's Jesus and he's out of the grave. And we miss how the kingdom came into effect the moment Jesus gave his spirit to the Lord. And it's so cool. Because after the death, there are a few more stories that bear great weight. The moments after death. Jesus told his disciples he would be arrested, beaten, mocked, and killed. He didn't tell them what was going to happen immediately afterwards. It was kind of like, surprise, here's the kingdom right now. What happened immediately after his death gives us an immense amount of hope, even in the midst of sorrow. Because let's face it, somebody dies that we know and love, what do we feel immediately? Sorrow, grief, this horrible, ah. Uh, in our lives because something has changed forever and it won't ever go back to the way it was. And if we jump straight to Jesus is out of the grave, we miss the beauty of the kingdom unfolding in the midst of sorrow. Taking us, not delivering us from the pain, but taking us through it out the other side so we see the beauty of what he's doing. Moments after death, three things happen. First, the veil was torn up. Oh, i got to choose better pictures somehow. I'm going to kill some lights. Um, temple, priest being really freaked out, and uh, the veil. Um, this veil was massive, okay? This is about, I'd say roughly to scale. This veil is massive. Super wide, super tall, on conservative estimates, about five inches thick. Made of a densely woven, layered fabric. This is the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. It is the veil that protected people, the priests, from the glory of God so they didn't die in his presence. This is the veil that is um, confining God's presence to the Holy of Holies, if we can use that term. It's not that God is confined, but it protects the people around him. But scripture tells us, that when Jesus breathed his last and yielded his spirit, the veil was torn top down. No hand of man can do that. No priest would have dared touch that. The hand of God, busting out of the Holy of Holies, took the veil and ripped it in half. Perhaps it was seen as a sign of God's grief over sin and the death of his sons. The tearing garments in the Old Testament was a common practice for grieving or blasphemy. Um, the priests tore their clothes in Matthew chapter 26 
when Jesus said, I'm the son of God. And the priests immediately ripped their clothes. Blasphemy, this is grievous. This is how they express their emotion. God the Father just separated from his son. All the sins of the world were unjustly put on him in the most righteous way possible. And the Lord, perhaps so grieved over what had just occurred, ripped his covering in half. Sin is so bad, I'm so upset about this. Perhaps the ripping of the veil was a symbol that God's presence was no longer in the temple. Right? It was the veil that shielded the people from the glory of God so that they wouldn't be killed. Ezekiel 10 and 11 speak of God's glory leaving the temple because of the sins of Israel. It's a great passage. You should read it sometime. Ezekiel 10 and 11. But in this passage... Maybe God's presence left the temple as a judgment for the priests and nation of Israel for putting Jesus to death. His presence left the temple. It was no longer in the Holy of Holies. The veil was torn and his presence was gone. It was not going to be the same at the temple anymore. And perhaps he tore the veil out of grief, left the the temple, his presence no longer there because... It was a sign that God's glory and presence is now roaming the world, accessible to anyone and everyone, not just the priests. For it no longer dwells in the temple holy of holies, but dwells here in the hearts of men who will receive Jesus' separation instead of their own. The veil was torn, and that meant some significant things. The second thing that happened, the dead were raised. Okay? This was a significant moment. There was a great earthquake and it shook the city so violently that all of the big stone rock things that get rolled in front of tombs cracked, broke open. And the people, the saints, the faithful, who were buried in those tombs, came out, walked around. Now, I need to tell you, I've never heard a sermon on this passage before, and I've talked with a lot of pastors about this passage, and there's kind of like a, it's the zombie passage. Nobody wants to touch this one. um, And and, and I, I felt that way until I looked at it within the context of the context of the context of Matthew. Matthew is all about Revealing the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. Continual cry throughout the gospel of Matthew. Immediately upon Jesus' death, resurrection. Jesus isn't even resurrected yet. And the people who have had faith in God are raised from the dead. And the scripture, in the original language, uses a word raised. And that means not the same body they had. They were given their new body, their glorious body, the one that shines from the city of heaven. And they walked around in great glory testifying about God because God had atoned for the sins of the world and something new was happening. Life was occurring. Even in the midst of death, even in the sorrowful moments, the moments after Jesus died, life was occurring. The kingdom was being brought forth in its fullness. This is exciting. Um... So the dead were raised. That's cool. God's presence is everywhere. 
The dead are being raised. And last but not leastly, there's this Roman centurion at the foot of the cross. He's the one that probably put the nails in the hands and the feet. He's the one that probably inserted the sword into the side of Jesus. Watched the blood and water run out. Matthew's whole emphasis on the gospel is the coming of the kingdom and the inclusion of the Gentiles, meaning everybody who wasn't a Jew, in the kingdom. And all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, is what scripture says. And all means all. And so it is fitting that just as the first people to praise Jesus after his birth were Gentile shepherds, the first people to praise Jesus after his death were Gentile soldiers. Confessing with their mouth and believing with their hearts that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. This is the kingdom of God in motion. It didn't wait till Easter. It started immediately in the midst of death and sorrow and pain Life was happening. Hope was happening. There could be joy. And all of this in the moments of death. We live in the moments after death today. But these promises still hold true for us. Unrestricted access to God. Death is undone. And there is hope for everyone. Everyone. Even the person who put nails in the hands of Jesus, in the most literal sense, can cry out, truly this was the Son of God, and be forgiven. Access to God is unrestricted. Nothing hinders us from having a relationship with God except our own choice not to. Death does not need to be the final word for us. Jesus has taken the broken, decaying world and undone the curse of sin and entered life into the equation where death once was. We have the hope of a life that pleases God now and the hope of an eternal life with a glorified body later. Even those men who nailed Jesus to a tree and mocked him could find hope in the man they crucified. But in order to lay hold of the promises of the moments after death, of access and life and hope, there has to be grief. Death means grief. We would be callous if we did not grieve. And we, we grieve the death of Jesus, but sometimes I think we don't grieve the sin that caused the death of Jesus. It's so sad that Jesus died. And we don't go one step further and say, it's sad that my sin put Jesus there. And there's a significant difference between the general, yes, Jesus died for sin, and Jesus that sep that was my, it should I it was me that should have been me and and it could be me if I don't repent we have to make it personal lay hold of those promises grieve our sin like God grieved when was the last time you grieved your sin in such a way that you just wanted to rip your clothes off and tell God I'm so sorry Nothing I am is worth anything, God. Everything, sin is bad in me, God. David lived like that. But I don't think in America, common cultural Christianity, we look at sin like that. And sin is sin. God forgives me. You want to realize 
something really significant happened because of sin. And we need to grieve our sin and what it did to Jesus. And then we need to lay hold of the promise of life in Christ that happens immediately after death. And what happens in Scripture is it says, if we confess with our mouth and believe with our hearts that Jesus is Lord, then we die to our old self and we become a new creature in Christ. We are like those folks when the rock shook and the grave opened and the people walked out. They were dead, now they're alive because Jesus died. They were dead, they now are alive because Jesus died. That's what happens to us in our life and our faith. It happens now and today. Probably should happen more regularly in our life because we need to grieve our sin more regularly. If we continue in our sin, Scripture says in Hebrews, we trample on the blood of Christ. We become like the mockers who stand at the foot of the cross. But the author of Hebrews continues to say that we can choose to participate in the great kingdom of God now. But we must grieve our sin. And then we have unrestricted access. Death is undone. And boy, I'm so glad that all of my sin does not prohibit me from having hope. Amen? Why don't we pray and we'll worship God and we'll repent of our sin and we'll do whatever we need to do to make ourselves in line with this because this is what gives us the hope that we have. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your great rescue plan. Thank you for not just scrapping the world after Adam and Eve sinned and saying, well, crud, they messed it up. Thank you for seeing hope where there was none and then creating a way for us to have hope and life in you. Thank you that no sin that I have done is so unforgivable that your blood didn't cover it. Thank you that if I would just turn and repent and grieve of my sin, you will turn that grief into joy. Scripture says you turn sorrow into dancing. And you did it right then in the moments after your death, Jesus. I guarantee you those who were dead woke up dancing that morning because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And we sometimes are the walking dead. We trust you, but we haven't committed to you. We want to commit to you this morning, Father, our lives and our souls. We want unrestricted access. We want hope. We want new life, not just after we breathe our last. We want new life now. In our families, in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, in our bodies. We want to lay hold of that and have new life now. Free from sin. Full of hope. As we worship you this morning, Father, would you work that out now in us? Would you help us put to death the things that we need to in our life and walk in new life with you? We give you all the glory and all of the praise because we love you, we follow you, and listen to you, and reflect upon your cross. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.